everyone to episode 48 of the 25 Live. My name is Jim Bernica. My special guest this week is Dr. Jeff Burgess. Now, he is the professor and associate dean for research in the community, environment, and policy department at the University of Arizona. He's been involved with firefighters for a couple of decades now, and hopefully a couple of decades past this as well, because the work he's done is absolutely amazing. We're going to dive into that in some of this, uh, this podcast here. Whether we talk about his firefighter cancer cohort study that he's part of, whether we talk about saunas, which is the hot button thing, and, and also PFOS as well. So that's all going to be in this episode. So without further ado, let's bring him in, Dr. Jeff Burgess. All right, welcome everyone to 25 Live. With me this week is my special guest, Dr. Jeff Burgess. Good morning to you, sir. Good morning. Good afternoon to me. Good morning to you. <laughs> that's right, Jeff. Thanks. Now, you were going to be part of our third annual health and wellness conference, but uh, University of Arizona said no traveling for you. So the best next thing is to get you on this podcast to talk about everything you've been working on. I'm looking forward to it. All right. So the first question I had is, how did you get involved with firefighters to begin with? Well, it's a bit of a long story, but when I was, uh, I, I was in emergency medicine first. And then after I did that, I was working in the field of medical toxicology, which is poisonings and chemical exposures and things like that. And while I was doing that program, uh, I started being interested in industrial hygiene, which is the, the measurement of exposures to individuals. So I took one of those classes and one of the professors I was working with did a lot of respiratory protection work. He wanted to see how well the respirators and things like SCBAs would protect the wearer. So I did a study on those with firefighters here in Tucson. That was back in the early 90s. So it's been almost 30 years now since then. Um, so I, I enjoyed working with the firefighters there. And then I went to Seattle uh, and was working at the University of Washington in occupational medicine. And they assigned me the job of working with the Seattle Fire Department to review their annual medical surveillance physicals. So I had a chance there to be working with them and looking at the changes that they had in their spirometry measurements over time. And we found some trends there that we investigated and found that there were some associations between the exposures they had and the declines in their respiratory protection. And from there, uh, I. I came back here to Tucson and continued to work with the firefighters on all sorts of different issues. Uh, you name it, I, if, if, if the firefighter cares about it, we've probably inve we've investigated it. Perfect. Now, one of the things you've been working on a lot and you spent a considerable time about is the firefighter cohort study. Can you kind of touch base on, on what all the details of that is? Sure. Well, we have been funded by FEMA for a few things that both led to and have carried on from the firefighter cancer cohort study. Uh, but let me talk a little bit about the structure of the study itself and then we can uh, cover some of the studies that have come out of it so far. The, the way the firefighter cancer cohort study is, is set up, it's got a oversight and planning board that is composed of fire service uh, representatives from all the different organizations. So everything we do 
It's kind of overseen by the fire service. And I think that's really critical. It's not a study of firefighters, it's a study with firefighters. And everything we do when we work with the department, we work with representatives of the department, they're part of the study, they're part of our calls. So this is truly a partnership. I'll say that a whole bunch of times, but it's really important to understand that. Uh, and, and therefore the things that we're looking at have meaning for the firefighters and it's information that they can use. So beyond this oversight and planning board, which is at the top, we've got a data coordinating center that's run out of the University of Miami. So the lead on that is Dr. Alberto Caban Martinez, which you may have heard of him. He's done some great work. And then we have uh, a exposure assessment center or core as part of this. And that's being run by NIOSH, the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health. Initially, it was Dr. Kenny Fent, who again, a lot of you may have heard of already, has done fantastic work looking at exposures to firefighters. And now it's being run by Dr. Miriam Calkins. Uh, and again, with other NIOSH individuals. So this is uh, not just, you know, a University of Arizona thing where I work, but also University of Miami and NIOSH and a bunch of, again, fire, de uh, fire departments around the country. I run the biomarker analysis core where we're collecting samples, usually blood and urine, and we can analyze that for chemical contaminants and biomarkers that show the effects of the firefighters exposures. So that's kind of the big picture. And there's a lot of other people involved in this. Uh, folks like Dr. Gavin Horn, Dr. Sarah Janke here on part of this. Again, you've probably heard of them that do fantastic work. And so we're trying to be a really big umbrella. So, so if other folks are interested and want to participate, that we find a space for them. Perfect. Perfect. Um, when did you start actually doing that? So the, the firefighter cancer cohort study itself started in, uh, the grant was around, I think, 2015, 2016. But before that, we had a project with the Tucson Fire Department that set the structure for many of the things we were doing with the firefighter cancer cohort study with multiple departments in multiple states. And really, that project looked at, was helping to address a bunch of issues that came up when one of their fire cause investigators died. So uh, he, he got leukemia, which is a known cancer associated with benzene exposure. We see benzene from fires. It's in all of the cancer presumptive laws that are out there. But despite that, he got his case denied and he therefore didn't have access to the type of medical care that he should have had if the case had been accepted. Um, and he, in fact, the case wasn't even accepted until after he died. So it was a bad situation. And this obviously, you know, it's not fair, it's not right. Um, and Tucson Fire Department wanted information to help, you know, future individuals both avoid cancer and if they did get cancer, to be able to help their cases get supported. So we we created a system where we brought a lot of Tucson firefighters in, well over 500, and we collected blood and urine from them, and we did a couple things. One is we looked at their acute exposures, so we knew exactly who 
among the fire department, which persons, you know, the, the paramedics, the engineers, uh, the captains, the firefighters, who was getting exposed on the fire ground. We also looked at biomarkers of effect in those individuals so that we could help support some of these workers' compensation cases. And the last thing we did was put interventions in place to help reduce their exposures. So we've gotten a lot of information on that study, which is now done, much of it published, that is being able to help firefighters. And I'm happy to go through any of those if you're interested, Jim, or we can kind of talk about other things. Well, just uh, could you brief me on some of the results that you found in just those even few years? Yeah, so one of the things that was a bit of a surprise was who was exposed. So we thought, based on all the work that was out there, that it would be the entry teams, right? They're going to get exposed. Even though they were in their SCBA, you can get these chemicals from the fire, like polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, absorbed directly into your skin. And you know that, and you've you heard a number of folks talk about that. Um, but what we were finding was everybody on the fire ground. So not just the captains and the firefighters, but the engineers and the paramedics all had very significant increases in the amount of chemicals in their urine from before the fire to after the fire. So everybody was being exposed. So that was, that was a bit of a surprise. We didn't expect it. And Tucson Fire Department used that information to help put interventions in place. So the first part of everyone being exposed, we're still getting that, you know, it's in the process of being submitted for publication. But we published on a project called uh, Evaluation of Interventions to Reduce Exposure of uh, firefi Firefighter Exposures. It was published this year where we found that if you put SCBAs on engineers, we call it engineers on air, you can greatly reduce their exposures by around 40% or so. And the same thing is if you do for the entry teams, you do a wash down before they doff their gear. So you wash them off, you know, you have some other guys washing them off, then they remove all their gear. And that coupled with the clean cab, right, doing the usual um, skin, you know, the dermal cleaning with uh, the wipes, again, reduced their exposures right by around 40%. So both of those were really effective ways of reducing firefighter exposures. And we recommend that broadly. Most, a lot of places are doing the washdown, but they're forgetting about the fact that you get exposures in the fire ground, even if you're not going into the fire and you, you need to protect yourself there. So I really would recommend that all fire departments think, look at this result that we published, think about how they can protect their own firefighters on the scene that aren't entry teams more effectively. And SCBAs are out there, they're well, you know, people are familiar with them. Uh, you know, if, if you got enough extra bottles for people to wear, it's a good way of protection and we've shown that it's effective. So that's one thing. I, before we go on, we could talk a little bit more about that if you got questions. I just, I actually remember you discussing that. I believe it was, I mean, close to you in Phoenix at that first um, firefighter cancer symposium that the NFFF did. And ever since then, I've been, because more often than not, I'm the engineer now where I'm at. And so, you know, I'm actually putting on my SCBA and the amount of crap that I have been given about that by my guys is, 
It's ridiculous. To where I've I've already you know I've spoke about this before to them. Like, hey, this is a real thing. There's science behind it. It's not just me being crazy thinking that this smoke is going to come and get me because it actually is. There's research. So and I'm I'm sure that there's all. I mean, that goes all over the place. And and one of the things that was really important about this was the fact that, again, it was a partnership with the Tucson Fire Department. So we had a couple guys, uh, Captain John Galata, uh, Captain and now Chief Darren Wallentine, and initially Captain Paul Moore and now Chief Paul Moore were all working with us. It came to every meeting we had. They were the ones who chose the interventions. So they thought about, they looked at healthy in, healthy out. They looked at the results of our study. Uh, studies that Kenny Fent and others had done, and they chose the interventions. They trained every single firefighter on what to do. And what they showed them was that information I told you about everybody on the fire ground being exposed. They would point out that when we would make a graph with individual dots, that those dots meant that was someone's level of chemical in their urine. Each dot was a person. And they could see the levels before the fire, and they could see the levels after the fire. So they knew that they were in that graph. So I think that was a really powerful thing. But you know, there's you can tell a firefighter something, but if you again don't show them why it's important, and this is where the it wasn't me as an academic going in. It was it was our fire service partners showing other firefighters the data and explaining it to them in a way that was easy for them to understand. And that's what allowed Tucson Fire Department to put these interventions in place and actually show that they were effective. There's no way we would have done this without that partnership. And they're the, they do a much better job explaining this than I do. So if you really want someone who's entertaining, because they're funny too, not me, um, you, uh, you should get them on to describe the process that they went through to make this culture change, which is what it was. No, it's great that they were able to take your numbers, your science, and make it, you know, a practical application for their firefighters to ultimately reduce their risk and hopefully not be diagnosed. That's, that's the point. So we're trying, that's the part of the study of, you know, that we're trying to prevent firefighters from getting cancer in the first place. We also have some, you know, information to help firefighters when they do get cancer, but that was a really big part of this. And we, as we've expanded from Tucson to other locations, uh, to other fire departments, we are looking into similar types of issues, but uh, focused in certain areas. So, for example, we're working with L.A. County and in obviously in, in California and Orange County Fire Authority also in, in California around their responses to WUI, wildland urban interface fires. And so they went out and they actually collected their own urine and brought it to us after these fires. So we're gonna be able once uh, NIO starts working in their labs again, because they've been out because of COVID-19, like many of the rest of us, you know, in academia, but we will be able to tell them what their exposures were, and they can use that to design the same information. We're doing things with, with we'll be starting to work with trainers to understand what their exposures are like. More information on volunteers always needed, and then fire cause investigators. So I, 
talked about the fire cause investigator. That was Tom Kesnell, who died here in Tucson um, back in about 2014, you know, um, from leukemia. That's something too that we care about and we want to continue to look at. And so we're working with all these fire departments that are part of the study to help understand what those guys' exposures are like and what can be done to reduce them. So the stuff we did in Tucson, we're kind of expanding and looking at other locations as well around uh, measuring the, the exposure part. And again, I can talk a little bit about some of these biological markers. Uh, they get a little bit research-ish, but I think, I, I think they do help with, again, workers' compensation cases, and I can give some examples there. And that's part of our studies too. Before you go in there, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but the idea is you're going to be doing this for 30 years. That's right. So the idea is you, you grab a, a rookie, somebody who has no, no exposures at all to this stuff, and you can get a, a baseline. This is what's in your blood. And you can follow that firefighter throughout his career, his or her career, and kind of see how they, they change because that's of all the different uh, exposures that they receive. That's right, Jim. This is, we, that is the power of this study. And in scientific terms, we call it a prospective cohort study. And cohort is just a fancy word for a group. And prospective means you follow them forward over time. And that it is that we're doing exactly what you said, which is we're, we're trying to get both new recruits before they've had their first live fire, you know, if possible, and incumbent firefighters, because we can compare those groups and we have compared those groups to be able to do it. We also, at the same time, when we're following people over time, we can analyze their blood for other things. Like if we have time today, we can talk about the PFOS chemicals, right? The purin polyfluoroalkyl substances. So we have studies there where we're comparing PFOS levels across fire departments. We can do that because we have their blood and we can also see what changes after a firefighter gets exposed, what changes are there in their blood that puts them at higher risk for cancer? That helps us understand what the risk factors are and maybe some places that in the future we could do interventions to help reduce their risk. Very nice. That's just, it's, to me, it's exciting. Um, you know, I was kind of here on the ground floor early on like you were, not as early. But, you know, 2006, being involved, and the only thing we knew was really Grace LeMaster's study, that this yep. was an actual problem. But just everything you're doing now and, and a lot of the other researchers you, you mentioned, whether it be Dr. Fenn or Dr. Janke, Dr. Horn, et cetera, et cetera, I just love the fact that they're actually spending all this time, all this money that are actually, be, you know, given to research and actually figure out this problem more. So whereas I may be doomed already, from my early exposures and not knowing everything, we're going to be able to make a difference in our future firefighters for sure. I, I strongly uh, believe that. I think we already are making differences. I mean, there is a culture shift in the fire service. People are cleaning their gear much more frequently than they did before. A lot of places are getting a second set of gear. You know, they're doing things differently. Um, they're reducing their exposure to diesel particulate, which is also you know, a cancer-causing agent. There's all many things that are being done now. So, you know, everyone talks about the, you know, the fire service and tradition, and, and they do have a long and proud tradition. But I personally see in many departments that have long traditions, they're doing things differently. So there are 
we are making things better. There's a lot of questions that still remain, however, and we hope to be able to help answer some of those. So you mentioned uh, what some would consider a naughty word sometimes, the PFOS. I would actually love for you to kind of go into that because that's going to be, you know, kind of adding that to this study as well. Sure. And, and in fact, we're now using the study to help uh, look at COVID-19 as well. That's something that a lot of people don't know of. That's a brand new study that we have with support from the CDC. So you can answer a lot of questions beyond just cancer by, by doing this prospective cohort study. And again, always making sure that you talk with your fire service partners, make sure that they want that they are interested in the information that can be provided, that they have input into the questions that are being asked so they know what to do with the results. That's really important. So let's talk a little bit about PFOS, but before I do, let me say that something else we're doing are these epigenetic markers. And this is important to understand the PFOS too, because we can measure PFOS, but we don't know what it means yet in a lot of cases. So you have an increased level of something. Is that gonna put you at risk for some disease like cancer or something else? We don't know the answer to all that yet. For some PFOS we do, but for others we don't. So there's, we also need to have a way to be able to look at exposures that can cause disease in the long term, but understand whether there's a harmful effect that's occurring not waiting for years for cancer to occur, but much sooner, like within a couple of years of an exposure. So that's something we're, we're looking at now. And one of the markers that we're using or sets of markers are things called epigenetic markers. It's a little bit, again, sciencey here, but I think that, that if you, um, I'll take just a few minutes to explain how these things work. So a lot of cancer, is a result of genes being turned on and off. So if you turn off something that's a tumor suppressor gene, you increase your risk of cancer. If you turn on something that's an oncogene that promotes cancer, that increases your risk of cancer. So these epigenetic markers are just ways of looking at whether these genes are turned on and off. And those can be these same markers we know are associated with increased risk of cancer in the general population. And what we're finding when we compare incumbents and new recruit firefighters in Tucson, this has all been published, that the incumbent firefighters had many of these, these epigenetic markers that were tumor suppressors were turned off or, or at lower levels in the incumbent firefighters and the oncogenes had higher levels in the firefighters. So that's putting them at increased risk from increased oncogenes and decreased tumor suppressors. So we found that comparing incumbents and new recruit firefighters. So that's a power of the study. We can compare, sorry, just let me turn this off. Um, that's, that's a power of what we can do in comparison, comparing these groups. And we're also seeing that some of these markers are changed after only two years in the new recruits. So we're already identifying some markers that are associated with exposures in firefighters. And in fact, the exposures, interestingly, are associated with the time you spent at structure fires, not all, of fi not all fires, but predominantly structure fires. And I think that's because of the, even though we talked about everyone in the fire scene being exposed, 
If you go into a fire, you have even higher levels of exposure than if you're outside the fire. I mean, we, I think most studies have shown that too. So we have these epigenetic markers. They're an intermediate between an exposure and a, and a long-term disease like cancer. So I'll stop there for a second and then I'll talk, answer any questions you have, and then I'll say why those are important for the PFOS as well. When you were just talking about the, uh, you know, the, the kids with only two years on having these increased exposures, already showing them, and I'm thinking about how our rookies are when we start, when they start, and I imagine it's that way everywhere else. They're the first ones in the fire and the last ones to leave. I mean, they're doing all the overhaul. I mean, they, they're there the entire time. <laughs> they're not really allowed to take a break. So that doesn't kind of surprise me at all that this stuff is showing up because they're certainly getting exposures, even more so than I would if I was on the same crew because they're going to be, again, start to finish, they're going to be in there. And those fire ground exposures are, are important. And that's why, you know, most departments are working on reducing those. There are other things as well, though. You know, we, one, some are, are much harder to deal with, like shift work. Shift work can increase your risk of cancer. Um, diet and exercise, obviously, you know, are things too that can influence it. So some things are, are in our control, others a little bit harder to control. But I think, you know, and it's good for any cancer prevention program the department has to deal with both the things that are purely occupational and the things where people have some influence over them, like exercise. You know, those are, those are all important things that can be done to help reduce things. So, um, but yeah, it is concerning to us that we're seeing things so soon. But on the other hand, now we have something where if we put an intervention in place, we can see whether we can prevent these changes from occurring. So this can be a really useful tool for us. And since some of these changes that we've noticed are associated with certain types of cancer, we can use that information if you have a workers' compensation case, and even with presumptive cancer laws, a lot of firefighters' cases are being turned down. You know that. It's really, it's not the way things are supposed to be. It's, the system is not working. No, it's been really rough, especially in your state. Absolutely. I mean, I, I mean stories after stories after stories, and it's the same here. And it's, I mean, weekly you'll see stories of uh, firefighters um, having to battle the system and uh, often losing. And, and the more data that we can have to show that firefighting is associated with changes in markers that are known in the general population, because we haven't got to the point where a lot of our firefighters gotten cancer yet, right? So that's the long term, the 30 year, we want to prevent the cancers, but long term, we'll be able to see these markers are associated with cancer later on. If we can't prevent it, you know, they still get it, we'll have the answers to them. That'll help a lot. But right now, we're looking at markers that are associated with increased cancer in the general population. That information is still useful if you have one of those cancers. So this is a source of information for those who want to help support their cancer, their cancer claims for workers' comp. So that's one of the ways these things are being used. Nice, very good. So back to PFOS. PFOS exposures, some of them, you know, for example, PFOA, which is one that's no longer produced, but can still be a breakdown product of some other PFOS chemicals. Um, PFOS as well, those are two that are known to be associated with different types of cancers. So we know that from general studies, 
But a lot of the, there's a lot of other PFAS chemicals that you can measure in the body too. And some of these are, they're called forever chemicals because they don't leave the environment very quickly. And some of these stay in your body for years and years and years as well. So those are the ones that we've been focusing on. What these more of these legacy chemicals that have been in the bodies, not just the firefighters, but the general population of the US. So we can measure those. We have measured those in both new recruits and incumbent firefighters. And we can, since the CDC is doing the measurements, we can compare these directly to the measures of the general population. We can tell firefighters whether the level of the chemicals in their bodies are higher than the general population because they're in everybody's body. But we, we have that added, uh, you know, HFF foam, and we have, we know it's in our, or at least it was on our gear, and there's, if nothing else, a cousin of it on our, our current gear. Yes. And, and, and so I think, you know, you've mentioned a few things there, Jim, that I think are really critical to look at. So we've looked at PFAS levels so far. We haven't published this yet. We're getting it ready um, in about four different fire departments in different parts of the country. And these are just regular structural firefighter. These are not airport firefighter guys. So uh, most of them haven't had exposure to a lot of the aqueous film forming foams or AFFF. Um, so two of the departments had levels that were higher than the general population and two had levels that were about the same. So we don't know yet why that is. We don't know if it's something those fire departments did or if it's just people that live in those towns have higher levels. You know, so we're trying to get in to answer those questions right now. But the ones that we are seeing up are tend to be both PFHXS and PFOS. Those two types of chemicals have been shown to be elevated in firefighters that use AFFF, you know? And so that is one thing we're worried about. Even though these departments aren't using a lot of AFFF now, we don't have really good records on their past exposures, and that may have had something to do with it. We have, we're do working with fire departments now, but we don't have those levels back yet. We expect their levels to be even higher for the airport firefighters, because they have been working a lot with AFFF over the years. So that is a big concern. And if any fire departments are out there that are working with AFFF, particularly the mill spec stuff that we know has the PFOS chemicals in it, and they're training with it, they should stop. There's really no reason to be training with this stuff anymore. You know, you should only be using it for fi actual fires. Because so gonna, you're, gonna, you're gonna gain that exposure, but it's also gonna get into the water and everybody else is gonna end up in your community drinking that stuff. That's right, and as you know, Jim, a lot of places where they use this stuff for many years, both firefighter training sites and petrochemical sites too, because they use this stuff for refinery fires all the time. In fact huge volumes, you know, can be used for those big petrochemical fires. Just really, really large volumes. And that does get into the water. And as we said, it lasts forever. So it'll be in there. And right now, you know, it's not, it's, there's health advisories for PFAS levels in water, but it's not mandated, you know, by law that it can't exceed a certain amount. It's just a recommended level. So this is, it, it becomes a huge problem yeah, and if so, if it doesn't have to be used, I mean, the airports still have to use it right now if there's a burning plane. It, it works really well to put out, you know, those hydrocarbon fires. Floats on top, puts out the fire. 
So in those settings where life, you know, is you're, you're having a direct threat to life, it should still be used until they have, you know, all alternatives that can be used. But for training, there's really no, there's no point to use these things for training. Perfect. I'm excited to to see that. Do you have any idea when you'll actually be able to publish some some numbers and results for that? So we hope that by the end of the year, we'll have some information out about the, the departments. Part of it is, you know, since I mentioned the CDC labs that are doing the analysis are shut down, you know, they, uh, you, you, there's a, they have a big, they have more people that want to do tests than they have capacity. So it's taking a while for getting things through, but we still, still hope to get that information back. But the other thing now we can do is, and we're starting to do, and we're already looking at, and again, hopefully this will be out at the end of the year, we can look at associations between specific PFOS levels in the blood and those epigenetic markers I was telling you about. And we already have started with that. And certain of these, of these PFOS chemicals are associated with changes, epigenetic changes. We're seeing that already. And therefore we can say which ones we're more worried about than others in the firefighters because they're associated with these changes. And we'll be able to say which of those changes are associated with cancer or, or other diseases. And so we're working on that now and again, Hope to have that out by the end of the year. Have a little bit of a finer tooth comb about which chemicals to worry about. That said, the CDC only measures a certain limited set of PFAS chemicals that tend to be widespread. And there are many more PFAS chemicals, including, you know, in AFFF, you know, could be from, from in fires, from things burning, because we have, we have, PFAS on many things that are stain resistant and they burn right in fires as well. So we may get exposure that way. And then there's the really important question about whether people are getting exposures from their gear. So we know that PFAS is in gear. We don't know if it's getting into people yet. A really important question to answer so, so that firefighters have information to make decisions. But because of COVID-19, that part of our study has been on hold for about a half year. And we're just waiting so that we can return to do this to help answer those questions. Sure. All right. That's excellent. Now, that was, uh, some would consider that a controversial subject. I want to go to another controversial subject. And uh, it's something I hear about all the time. And it's the magic word of saunas. So <laughs> I know you've actually done some research on that. I know I remember the IFF coming out saying they had some concerns and kind of your job was to say whether the concerns are, you know, kind of fact or fiction, you know, are you, were you able to myth bust that or not? Like, you know, the whole concept about saunas is we know we get this bad stuff into our skin. We can sit in these saunas and it's going to pull that stuff back out of the skin. At least that's the, on the surface, that's the hope. And I want to just ask you, is that, is that accurate or not? Does this, does it help us? Does it hurt us? Or does it really not matter? We, even though we've now published a study, that, that uh, paper I mentioned, look at the name here again, Evaluation of Interventions to Reduce Firefighter Exposures, again, got published this year, and it's freely available. Anyone can, you know, go and get it. It's open access and read it and then make decisions themselves on it. We hopefully laid out the information, and then we have firefighter authors on it, too. So the firefighters were part of writing this thing up. So I think it should be about as friendly as an article gets, although there, you know, some of the 
the methods are a little bit hard for even scientists, uh, you know, to kind of completely understand everything. But anyhow, um, we did this study because the fire service asked for it. Just like I said before, this is a partnership issue. So we had a number of fire departments that wanted us to look into this. And the folks in Scottsdale Fire Department, so Chief Eric Bellier uh, and, and the union president, uh, Sasha, had asked us to do this study. And so we, it wasn't on our initial docket of things to do, you know, on the FEMA project, but since they were asking for it and really wanted it and they were willing to create a setting where we could study it, and they had their own sauna already, we said, okay, we'll do this. Um, and so the way it got set up is they got a sauna from Costco. Again, I'm not, I don't have any stock or any financial interest in any of this, just so you know. I didn't choose the sauna. It was, uh, you know, it's a couple grand, so it's not, enor it's an infrared sauna, which I think is important too, because whenever you do research, you end up with more questions often than you do answers. And, and so you have to realize that we want to look at one type of sauna in one type of setting. So it's a very limited amount of information. You, you know, a lot more studies are needed truly on it. You hear that all the time from academics, but we really mean it this time. Um, so it was a infrared sauna. Scottsdale chose the exposure parameters. So they wanted to do it after they did their training. So for part of their training, they do two evolutions inside with live fire exercises, you know, smoky setting, um, burning a lot of, you know, traditional materials. And the guys had about, probably about maybe two 13-ish minute exposures with kind of a rehab setting in between. And then once the guys came out, they either, they all took showers then half of them went into the sauna, I think it was like 120 degrees Fahrenheit for 20 minutes. And half of them didn't take a sauna. The guys who went into the sauna took another shower after they were done, because the idea is if you sweated it out, you wanted to wash it off, right, before it could get back in again. Sure. And so that was the exposures. And then I'll talk a little bit about how we measured things. But again, they didn't do exercise, which some people do they that it was 20 minutes to sitting in the sauna or not sitting in the sauna that was the comparison we did so jim do you have any questions on the exposure part of, of this before i go into the results no no i'm with you so far okay the other thing that we did is we wanted to look at the chemicals that were in their urine so the urine chemicals will reflect both exposures from breathing things in and from things that get in your through your skin we looked at polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbon metabolites and PAHs are always present when you burn things. Some of them are known human carcinogens, others are suspect, and others we don't know how carcinogenic they are, but we can measure them in the urine. And so we were comparing <clears throat> the urine before and after the fire and between people who went into the sauna and those who did. And we had 12 in each group. <clears throat> the other thing we did was had them swallow temperature probes. And you may have heard about some of these studies too. You can actually measure their core temperature through these little radio transmitters that you swallow. And the core temperature is the best reflection of what your temperature is. Because if you come out of a fire and you try to do it in the air or the mouth and you've been you know, hot, uh, it may register differently than actually something that's measuring your core. 
we didn't want to warm up their core temperature anymore. We wanted them to sweat, but not heat them up. Because every time you heat a firefighter up, there may be cardiovascular consequences, right? It could, makes your blood a little bit thicker. It, it's harder to concentrate. I think you know, I mean, I've never been, you know, at an actual fire, just training facilities, right? But sure. as you know, that you get wiped out after you've been to a fire. Well, we don't want to wipe you out more, right? By, by doing the, the sauna. So we measured the urine and we measured the core temperature. And what we found was that there was actually a big difference between the individuals that went into the sauna. They had less chemical in their urine, suggesting that less was absorbed as compared to the guys that didn't do a sauna, that did the same training evolutions. But it wasn't a statistically significant result. So what does that mean? That means the results could have been done, uh, could have been from chance alone. Whenever you find that, it means you have to do the study over again and you have to do it bigger. So we probably need, rather than 12 people in each group, we probably need like 25 people in each group to be able to really figure this out, whether it reduces these, you know, these exposures or not. So there was a reduction, it wasn't statistically significant, but also importantly, we really didn't find that, that this infrared sauna at 120 degrees for 20 minutes increased their core temperature. So they were sweating for sure, but it didn't increase their core temperature. So except for increasing their heart rate, you know, somewhat, but again, you know, that's not, I'm not worried about someone's heart rate going up somewhat, as long as it's not really, really high and it wasn't. We didn't see any danger from this either. So what we told the Scottsdale Fire Department and we say more broadly and is in this article, we can't tell you that it helps you, but we can't tell you that it hurts you either. So go ahead, do what you want to do, but realize that, you know, we only can talk about the settings that we talked about 120, no exercise, 120 degrees Fahrenheit, no exercise for 20 minutes. And the showers are really important, you know, before and after too. So that's where we are. We need more work on it. Um, I, I always hate it when a study doesn't give a conclusive result, but that's where we are on this one. Okay. No, but I mean, that did answer some of the IFF's concerns. Um, and, and like you said, you could use it, but be careful as well, because we're not really quite sure yet. So yep. exactly. Perfect. Well, I know you have a limited amount of time. I wanted to actually change the subjects and do my 25 questions for you, not actually 25 questions, because clearly you don't have time for that as rapid fire as I could be. I just want you to pick just throw out a number out of me and we'll go over some of these questions and get you out of here. How's that? Uh, sound? Let's, let's, go, let's go backwards. Let's try 25. Favorite professional sports team. Oh God. Uh, I still like the Seahawks. I was from the Northwest. So there we go. Did you ever go to a game there? Yeah, I did. I, I went, I, 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 I went like to, go ahead. Sorry. I said, I don't like the wave that much though. So that was bugging me because they used to do that constantly oh. to stand up, but otherwise it was a good game. I went to a Bengal Seahawks game. This has to be 15 years ago. And I went, uh, I actually sat in the Hawks nest, which for the people closer to home is more like uh, the dog pound. It's, it's the end zone is the rowdiest part of the place. And 
I am thankful to still be here today to be able to get out alive from that place because it was, <laughs> it was actually scary. No, really, you guys were crazy. Yeah, yeah, they've got a long history history of craziness up there. Oh, and I, I stuck out wearing orange. So yeah, <laughs> lessons learned there. You can you can go to whatever like Major League Baseball and wear a different person's you know jersey. Doesn't matter. They don't they don't care. Football, there's just too many people drinking. That's bad. Anyways, I digress. What's what's another number? Uh, do twenty. <laughs> Favorite dessert. Oh God. Um. Yeah, that's a hard one for me. I like a lot of different things. Probably tapioca. <laughs> All right. I don't know what it is about it. I like it. All right. Let's have one more. Uh, let's do. Let's do number ten. Do you have a favorite comedian? I'm sorry, a favorite comedian? Comedian, yes. Like, like a funny. Am I understand? I just want to make sure. Like a funny guy, right? A funny guy, yeah. That's right. Yeah, a Jerry Seinfeld or uh, somebody like that. Yeah, um, I can't remember his name though. Um, who's the guy? Uh, Oh man, I do, but I can't remember his name, Jim. I I'm sorry about that one, and I can't think of anybody else to take their uh, their place. So I'm gonna have to leave you on a on a forgetful note. <laughs> if uh, if he if uh, Dr. Burgess remembers later on, I'll I'll make sure to add it to the show notes. Uh, that'll be your homework for me. Cool. All right. Well, thank you, Jim, for this opportunity to share some of our work. And uh, I, I appreciate you helping to disseminate some of these, these findings for people to think about. Absolutely. And again, I'm sorry that I'm not going to be, or you're not going to be with me here in exotic Beaver Creek, Ohio in October, but uh, I get it. And I'm sure we'll hook up at some other point, but thank you for at least coming on the show today and, and sharing a lot of these results. And, and the other thing is, do you have retirement plans? Do you have a, do you have, because, because I'm hoping you don't, because I want you to do this stuff forever. I, 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 I'm in, I will tell you that it's an honor and a privilege to work with firefighters. I mean, you guys are out saving us, and the least thing we can, the least we can do is to help provide some information to make your, help you guys make decisions to make your jobs a little bit safer. So it is, it is the most enjoyable thing that I've done. And these partnerships work with the firefighters. It's, it's just, it's fun. I mean, it's serious business, but it's fun. And I, I think we're all making a difference working together. So I do not want to stop doing this. Good. That's, that is the answer I wanted to hear along with my listeners. So thank you uh, again for your time. And uh, I'm sure we'll see each other again here soon. Hopefully. Great. Take care, Jim. Thank you. 